This is going to be a little bit of a unique Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to have, I'm going to share for a little bit, and then we have some friends that we are, are local partners uh, that we work with in ministries in this community. Uh, we have some of their representatives here that are going to share with us some about some things that are happening locally. Uh, we'll get into that in, in a minute. But um, I mentioned this last week, there, there are three necessary legs for discipleship. It's like a functional stool. So when you think of discipleship, uh, I want to give you some handles for what that looks like. It looks like three things. It looks like being with Jesus. It looks like becoming like Jesus. And it looks like doing what Jesus did. All three of those are essential for us to actually follow Jesus. And when we remove one of those, we remove significant facets of what Jesus invites us into. So if you take away being with Jesus... You remove that facet of discipleship. You steal the very essence of what Jesus invites us into, to know him and to be known by him. That is a significant part of our discipleship. It's one of the legs of discipleship. So we value, we talked about this a few weeks ago, connecting with Jesus. Another leg to the stool is becoming like Jesus. And so if you take that leg away, you become like the Pharisees who do external stuff but their character is maligned and, and poisonous. So we value, talked about last week, embracing humility. It's an important facet in our discipleship. And that third leg of discipleship is doing what Jesus did. And if we remove that facet, what we're going to talk about this morning, we become this internal country club that brings no light or hope to the world. And we're not called just to be this insulated group of people but we're called to, to gather and then scatter into the world and be hope and light to the world. And so this morning, we want to talk about valuing intentional kingdom living. I'm going to do that this morning, and then I'm going to invite some friends up. So I want to set the stage. It's interesting. I've, I've noticed this. You might have too uh, on social media or anywhere else. It seems like there is a master class for everything. Like you can Google anything. And you'll find a master class. Somebody has the corner market on something, and you can find a master class about it. And, and that would include uh, a master class I found on this called Individualistic Culture Explained. So if you're curious about individualism, you can go to this master class and pay $69.49 or whatever the price is. And, and then you can learn from this person who probably doesn't know anything about it. You can learn from them and be educated. Uh, and so individualism per this master class says this, the, the definition. Individualism is a type of social behavior and psychological science that emphasizes the individual over the group. So attributes for individualism would include uh, personal goals, um, independence, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, privacy. Those are all things that, as Westerners, we, we value. That's kind of baked into who we are and the ethos of who we are. And as Western civilization, that's where we swim. That's kind of what we drink from. This is the water that we swim in. And then on the other side, individualism would be on one side. On the other side would be more of a collectivist uh, approach to life. And so you see that in some Asian cultures, you see that in China and South Korea and Japan, uh, there'd be more of a collectivist approach. And so per this masterclass, they, they presented three pros. So I, I did read some of it. I didn't actually pay. I did as much as I could to not actually pay for any of it. And so I, I learned that there are three pros for what they say to individualism, and there's three cons uh, to individualism. So the, the three pros. First is a celebration. These are the pros. A celebration of diversity. So it's an awareness 
of and open support of diversity of thought, of background, of experience and appearance. That would be a pro to individualism. Secondly, they said it's an encouragement of self-expression. And again, we, we see this on 10 in our culture today. A value to express uh, your emotions, your beliefs, your ideas. And the third pro is a focus on personal development. So individuals in these cultures tend to be more self-reliant, confident in their ability to support themselves. Again, individualism. And there's three cons uh, per this masterclass. The first is a decrease in unity. That each individual might tend toward emphasizing their cultural difference, differences, which results in dis, disharmony. The second con would be a, a lower sense of, of empathy. By nature, more self-interested people mean that we are less empathetic and less caring toward others. We focus more on ourselves and less on others. And the third con would be a reduced sense of support. Because individualism is the focus, there's not a, a net of, of relational support that can help. And so here's the point. The collision is found here. The people of God have always been called to be a blessing to the world. We've always been called from the very first pages of the scripture. We've been called to be a blessing to the world. And individualism will struggle to embrace being a blessing if being a blessing doesn't profit me. So when we talk about doing what Jesus did, and we talk about intentionally living for the kingdom, we have to recognize that there is a tendency within even us as Westerners that we sometimes approach blessing and caring for others only if we can get a profit for it. And we have to recognize that Jesus calls us into a different way of thinking. See, Jesus invites us to live intentionally for his kingdom. And though collectivism has its flaws, it's good to recognize how individualism can prevent us from this invitation. So from the first pages of the Bible, we find this. We find that God created, and he created things good. God created things good, and he created man and woman in his image and in his likeness. And male, male and female, man and woman, were uh, sacred in the creation story that we see. They were unique and unlike anything else that was created, that God created. So there's a level of dignity and a level of honor that was given to male and female. But as the story unfolds, we see that sin enters. We see that death enters. We see that the world begins to unravel, like for real unravel. The world begins to fall apart, fractured to the core, becomes broken beyond being able to be fixed. And so God, in chapter 12 of Genesis, calls a man named Abram, and he calls him to be a blessing and to be a blessing to the world, and to be one who would be the father of a nation, who would bless the world, that God would bless him, and he would become a blessing to the world. And as you begin and continue to read throughout the scripture, we see that two words were given to these people to represent God in the world. The first word was to be a righteous people, and the second word was to be a just people. So the first would be a righteous people. It's a, that means to be a ethical, it's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships with people. It's about treating others in light of the image of God that they are. They were called to be a righteous people. They were called to be a just people, a people of justice. 
And this primarily refers to restorative justice. It's actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. So the point, throughout the beginning, first pages of the, of the scripture, is that we were called to uh, be a blessing to the world, to actually allow our resources, our gifts, to not just bless ourselves, to become a, a moat for our own lives, but that we would actually be a conduit of blessing into the world. A few scriptures in the Old Testament, the first would be Psalm 40, 146, 7 through 9. It says, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then Jeremiah 22, 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this, this theme of God's desire for his people to represent him in the world and actually be a conduit of blessing to the people that are around him. So because human life is sacred, the people of God are called to care strategically and carefully and intentionally those that are around them. See, the, primar- the, the Bible primarily focuses on four groups of people who can be taken advantage of. Um, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. Those four groups of people, what theologians would call the quartet of the vulnerable. Quartet meaning four, the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the poor, the, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant are our responsibility of, of making sure that they are cared for. Every single human life is sacred and precious. And that's what the heart of God depicts to us. It's, a, it's an invitation of uh, radical selflessness that we're invited into as God's people. And the irony is that the people of God that God set apart to be a blessing actually became a very um, unjust people. And didn't exhibit the heart of God. But the biblical story continues and culminates in the fact that God actually wrote himself into our story as the primary hero in the text. And he didn't just leave us to ourselves, but he came and he depicted justice and righteousness. Jesus carries out this rich tradition of biblical justice forward. So we see in Luke 4, Jesus shows up, and in the Gospel of Luke, one of the first things that we read in the, in the Gospel of Luke to inaugurate the ministry of Jesus is that he went into the temple, and he opened the scroll, and he opened it to the prophet Isaiah, and then he read this text that we're going to read together. Luke 4, verse 16, it says this, and he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, 
the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? I mean, this, this moment was shocking. It was shocking for the listeners that heard Jesus say that the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is taking place here and now through me. It was a shocking statement that Jesus made. He depicts this now and not yet um, moment, this, this prophecy. We're going to see this a lot as we go through, shameless plug, our, our minor prophet Bible studies happening soon. Sign up. Um, and in it, you're going to see a lot of now, not yet moments where prophecies are given and, and part they're happening now. And in, in part, they're happening in a future day. And in the same paragraph, you could have a, a now statement and a not yet statement. And Jesus is depicting that here, that there's an element of what's happening is being dealt with now, that he is dealing with it now, and there's an element that's to, to come. See, the reality is this, that Jesus came to roll up his sleeves and to deal with the effects of sin, to deal with the effects of death, and to bring about his kingdom. This is what he came to do. He came to sought, to seek and mend and heal the world. He came to dethrone Satan. He came to dethrone his dominion. He came to actively restore this broken world. He came to bring down oppressors and to raise up those who were oppressed. But it didn't end there. He didn't just do that, but he also commissioned his disciples to do likewise. And so in Matthew 25, we read one of the last teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25. It's a startling text, but nonetheless something worth reading. And in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say or answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Two things are happening within the text. First, we see this traditional understanding of judgment, that the reality is in light of the justice of God, he can't just wink at sin. It would make him unjust. And so he used to deal with the realities of sin. And so he offered to all who are guilty, including us, a way out from our guilt, and that would be through the sacrifice of his son, that he made a provision for us to be freed from our guilt. So part of the text is referencing that. And the other part is referencing this, this moment that, that takes place. It's like a twist, if you will. In, 30, in verse 35 and 36, where it says, I was hungry and you took care of me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was, I was in prison and you met with me. I, I was doing all of these things. And the people are staring at him like, no, we didn't. 
Like that's, the, that's what, what's happening here. They, they say, in this moment, they say, um, how did we do this? When did we do this? And, and the king answers this turn of events, this moment, this curveball. He says, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's this moment where Jesus is teaching his disciples that as you serve, as you care for the quartet of the vulnerable, in serving them in a roundabout way, you are actually serving me and you're serving of them. He's teaching his disciples this value of what it looks like to be a blessing to the world, what it looks like to care for the vulnerable, what it looks like to care for those that are down and out, to actually care in the way that depicts and exemplifies the heart of God. Tim Keller says, no heart that loves Christ can be cold to the vulnerable and the needy. And again, what's interesting is that Jesus gives this to his disciples. So the question is, what do the disciples do with it? We have a book called Acts and, and letters that follow that help us see what's happening in the early church. And what we see in the early church is they sacrifice for their neighbors. They sacrifice for those who are in need. They actively engage those three legs to the stool of discipleship. And so in Acts 6 would be an example. We see this take place. I'll read it to you. Acts 6, starting in verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man, of, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, there we go, and Timon, and Parnius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what happens. There's a vulnerable group, widows, one of the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows in this community were, were being neglected in this city, in this area. And the church took it upon themselves to care for those that were neglected in that area. See, these, these people were Hellenists, and, and Luke tells us, that Luke wrote Acts, he's telling us that these, these Hellenists are, are non-Jews. They were Greeks, they were Gentiles. But it was a no-brainer for the church, the early church, to if there was need in the quartet of the vulnerable, we're going to sacrifice and care because to much has been given, much is required. They recognized there was a natural process of I have been blessed by Jesus and all he has given us and every spiritual blessing, and I'm not going to end there. I'm going to value the trio of legs that exist in doing what Jesus did, and we're going to get after doing what Jesus did. And they did. And what was the effect the gospel blew up in that area. There's this, there's this hand-in-hand reality that when the church, who doesn't put aside the gospel, but allows the gospel to be central, lives their lives in such a way that exemplifies Jesus, the effect of that is the spirit moves and lives are drawn afresh into the kingdom. It's this beautiful reality that takes place. See, what I love is that history affirms 
what we read here. Several decades later, into the early, um, this would be around 117 to 138 AD, several decades later, history would tell us that Aristides, who's an Athenian, reported to the Caesar of the time, Hadrian, concerning the way of Jesus, and he says this about the early church, they love one another, and he who has gives to him. He who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes. I mean, that confronts individualism. And rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that are poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there's something divine in the midst of them. It's powerful. That's that's a secular response to what they're seeing the church do. I mean, something unique is happening in their midst. They believe this different way, and they're living it. It's beautiful. They were disadvantaging themselves for the sake of others. So here we are, most of us, if not all of us, Westerners, swimming in the sea of individualism. And we're summoned to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. There's two ways I hope we lean into this and and, and this practically. One, I I invite you to, it's simple, just evaluate your life and see if there is somebody in your life who doesn't follow Jesus and start praying for them. That's not crazy. There's a guy I met at the gym. He's a Jewish guy. And we meet up together a good bit and and work out together. And and this last week, we were side by side um, doing this exercise and I was a bo- you're supposed to jump up onto a box, and I, I tripped um, onto the box, and I shredded my shin, and I jacked my rib. I'm having a hard time breathing right now, um, which is good that I'm going to India today. And don't tell my wife, I won't say that at 11 o'clock. Um, but man, he was right there to help me out. A little bit embarrassed, and we talked about it afterwards and laughed about it. And we're building a relationship, and I'm praying for him. I'm praying that God would do something in his life, and he would see the complete picture of, of what he sees in Judaism and see how the Messiah is Jesus. Like, I'm praying for his life. Who is that for you? I invite you to be praying for a person. And if you don't have somebody in your life, then evaluate if maybe you need to get outside of your circles, maybe get involved in your neighborhood or something that would help you be able to know people that don't follow Jesus. So my first thing, to intentionally live as a part of the kingdom, to pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus. The second thing I would say is to serve the quartet of the vulnerable. It's a part of what it, what it looks like to do what Jesus did. And so you ask, how? And so we have some incredible local partners that are here that are going to share with us. Mike, you can come on up. I want to introduce, uh, Mike's going to introduce some of them to you. Um, but this is a very practical way that our church is serving the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And so, Mike, good morning. You're having a hard time with that, aren't you? Everybody does. Um, you got to push just super hard. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, great. That works? Yeah. Thanks so much. I'm so excited, Ernie. Man, you nailed it. Mm. Absolutely nailed it. So we've got an opportunity as a church to, um, we want to provide opportunities today for everybody to get involved in some way. So we have four organizations the quartet of the organizations, no, not really, I just made that up, um, but we've got four organizations that serve uh, foster kids, the foster community, 
We have an organization that serves um, women who are dealing with unwanted pregnancies, and we have another organization that serves the benevolent needs of churches and helps churches to um, hear every need and, and, and meet every need that comes to the doors. So um, with that, we're going to have each person come up and share for five minutes. On the screen, we'll have a QR code where you can instantly volunteer. You'll be able to go to their site, volunteer area, and sign up. Now, this is giving you permission to bring your phones up. Everybody get your phones up. Get your um, cameras on. You can raise them. We're not going to be paying attention to exactly who raises their cameras and takes pictures, but God knows. <laughs> Just saying. Then after the service, we'll have all um, four of um, these folks will be in the front here to answer your questions and connect you if you missed a QR code. All right, we good to go? Good. Um, first one's coming up. We're going to have Sarah from Christian City. Then we're going to have Christy from Atlanta Angels. Jay from First uh, Care Women's Clinic. I got it. Then this guy from um, One Need. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Thanks, buddy. Good morning. You guys are really enthusiastic. I appreciate it. The church I go to for the first service, they're like, hello. So good. Okay, we get it. We need to wake up. Uh, my name is Sarah Roberts, and I work as the resource and development professional at Christian City, specifically with our Crossroads program. So Crossroads is just one of five incredible children and family programs that we have available at Christian City. Um, Christian City has done a lot of work to really cover the full gambit of um, our children and families that are in care. So we have preventative programs all the way through kiddos who have aged out of the foster care system and just need a little help launching into adulthood successfully. Um, but I'm here today for our foster and adoptive program. So Crossroads works specifically with uh, the populations of foster and adoptive care that are a little bit harder to place. So we work with kids that are older than 12 years, sibling groups of all ages that are three or larger sibling sets, um, kiddos that have higher behavioral needs or kiddos that have a higher medical need. And these are kids that frequently stay within the system and get bounced from home to home to home because there's just no good place for them. Or for our larger sibling sets, it has been very common for the state to say, oh, you know what, these kids need a home, so we're just going to split the siblings, and two of them will go to this home, and three of them will go to this home. And after being ripped out of their home, they're now having to be separated from the only people that they've known and loved and trusted their whole life. So what we want to do is to be able to help provide spaces for those kids to go, to be safe, and to continue to thrive. Um, so I have... Mike said that he likes some data, and I'm sure there are some of you in the room that like some data as well. So just so you're aware, currently within the state of Georgia, we have over 4,000 kids that are in the foster care system, and that's just our state. Um, in our state, there are over 300 kids who are legally free for adoption, which means their parental rights have been terminated. They no longer legally belong to a family, and they're looking for a space and a family to belong to. Uh, but to make this a little more personal for you guys, within the zip code here for the church, um, there are 188 children that are in the foster care system right now. And of that, 87 of those kiddos have had to be placed outside of this county for a placement, which means there aren't enough homes within this county to be able to house them. Now imagine yourself going into care, you get placed in a home, um, and all of a sudden, you're realizing that this home is nowhere that you know 
you know your county and you kind of know where the Walmart is and the Kroger is and you know where your school was, but now you're in a whole new place with all these new people. So there's a great benefit to being able to place kids within their same counties because they kind of have some sense of familiarity. There's some sense of stabilization there for them. So you guys, with a simple yes, can be one of those families that provides that safe space for them. But in addition to that, you guys as the church have a very unique opportunity for our kids who are in care. Us as their team members, their DFACS case managers, their lawyers, nobody can show them and teach them and speak to them the gospel in the way that you can. It gets me every time, but there's a God who deeply, deeply loves them. They are valued and cherished children, and they don't know it because they feel like they've been left behind and forgotten. And we can't tell them that because of the role we play in our life, but you can. Having them in your home, you have the chance to look at them and remind them that they're loved, that they're wanted, that there's a God who didn't forget about them. And that's something that you can do with just a simple yes. Now, I recognize fully that adoption and foster care is not for everybody, and we respect that. We have a ton of volunteer opportunities available for you to support our families, for you to support these kids. So if you have questions, I'm going to be down yonder ways, and you can come talk to me about all the fun stuff that we have available for you just to come alongside in this journey. If you're questioning and you're like, I just, I would like to know a little bit more about what this looks like, come ask a question. It commits you to nothing, so you can take a really deep breath. You're not committed by just asking a question, but I love to answer questions, so please come ask all of them. If you're interested in foster care or adoption, I would love to tell you more about all these wonderful services that we can provide to you as we come alongside you and work with you. Good morning. I'm Christy with Atlanta Angels. Um, and so um, you've heard about all the kiddos needing foster homes. And what we know is that about half of foster homes will close within the first six months to a year because they feel overwhelmed and undersupported. And that's in part what's leading to how frequently they're moving. And they're moving into counties that are not their own. Um, and so we believe that not everyone is called to foster or adopt, but everyone can do something. And so we have two programs. One's the Love Box program. In that one, you are um, matched with a foster family and wrap really intentional relational support around this family um, on a monthly basis for at least a year. So both of our uh, programs involve a year-long commitment. They're relational and they're intentional. Um, this QR code is going to take you to our page. That's our families and youth on our wait list. You can see specific families and youth who are waiting for matches. Our other program is called Dare to Dream, and this one is mentoring for youth who are older in care. We start our mentoring at 11 because by the time they're reaching the age out age, they've been through so much trauma and lack of consistency, and so we wanna provide that for them a little bit earlier on. Mike is one of our awesome mentors, so he can also maybe answer some questions from that perspective. Um, but I just wanna share about one of our real kiddos. Last week, we had a 13-year-old who's matched with a mentor um, who ran away and was a missing person, posted on DCAB Police's missing persons page. Um, she had run away. She was squatting in an empty apartment and felt like no one was looking for her. And the sad truth is that that was true, except for her mentor and her Atlanta Angels case manager. 
And when they got in touch with her and called the police, they said, great, let us know when you find her so we can take her off missing, missing persons. And if it weren't for her mentor and our support, she would not have that consistency. She would not have people who went door to door looking for her and breathing into her, letting her know that they are there and that they care. Um, and so that's what you can provide as a mentor. We had another uh, youth who did move three times, not only outside of his county, but throughout the entire state. At one point, he was in South Georgia, two and a half hours away. Um, his mentor, within a week of him being moved down to South Georgia, drove down to see him, let him know he was still there. Throughout these 11 months, he's moved three times, and his mentor has been the one consistent person in his life. And after 11 months of building trust with him, he's finally started opening up with him and letting him know his fears and really being honest and truthful with him. That is going to make such a difference in his life as he reaches that age out age. So um, both of these programs do require, like I said, it's intentional, it's relational, it's consistent, um, but it is so life-changing. So on this website, uh, there are a couple families here in Marietta currently waiting. One of the Marietta families is a single foster mama to medically fragile children, and we talked about to her about um, what the Love Box program could do. She was so excited at the thought of going to get her nails done by herself. Like, that was such a crazy thought to her. She's like, I haven't been able to be alone in years um, because of what the, the kiddos' needs uh, require. So it's simple, simple things like that that make such a difference. Um, our foster family supported through Love Box. I mentioned earlier about half will close their homes in the first six months to a year. Uh, at the end of last year, 100% of our foster parents supported by Lovebox were still active open homes. So that little bit of extra support makes a huge, huge difference. And that's something you can do if maybe you're not feeling called to foster or adopt. Though if you are, that's awesome. And then we want to support you through the Lovebox program. So thank you. Uh, good morning. My name is Jay Watts. I am representing First Care Women's Clinic. Lori Parker, our executive director, wanted to be here with you, but uh, she had a family event that drew her way. I actually am the chairperson of the board for First Care Women's Clinic. So I run an organiz a different organization. I do pro-life apologetics. So, um, so the reason I'm looking at my phone is because Lori gave me a list of things I have to talk to you guys about. Uh, and I, she's going to ask me as soon as I see her if I covered that list. So I want to make sure I get it. Uh, a little bit about... Pregnancy resource centers, if you don't know them, and the difference. We were talking about this over here beforehand, the, the way they've changed over the years. You're talking about organizations that when they were first began, what happened was as people were facing unwanted pregnancies, families or small groups in the community volunteered in these, often like when, when, when this opened, it was Cobb Pregnancy Services. It was in a very small office, and they were there to counsel women who were facing unwanted pregnancy. And, and they could gather things from the community, but they were very small, very personal. They were, they were very often just families that gathered together to do this. Over the last couple of decades, uh, this has changed. You are lucky. We are blessed in Cobb County. We have one of the greatest pregnancy resource centers in the country. And that's not an exaggeration. When people come and evaluate what this organization does, Lori has led this in a very forward-thinking manner. And so over the years, it has grown and to the point where now we, we changed from Cobb Pregnancy Services to First Care Women's Clinic uh, because in order to meet the needs of the community you're trying to minister to, which is, which 
unfortunately, when you talk about an issue like abortion, as divisive as it is, and, and I argue about this for a living, so I know exactly how divisive it is. I go into places where people disagree and hate the things that I say and have discussions with them. What, what pregnancy resource centers do, though, is they set up in the community and they offer a Christ-like response to a problem for the people that are facing it. The people that walk into this door don't want to make that decision. They feel like life is driving them towards that decision. They are afraid and they have no choice or no option. And, and what happens is you have a place in the community that tries to meet those needs that they feel like are driving them. We talk about making, giving them life-affirming options to take people in crisis and to tell them that, sure, you may feel like you can't handle everything that's coming right now, but you don't have to be able to handle it right now. There are measures or steps that we can take towards getting to the next place so that by the time all of this is in front of you in a more tangible way, for example, for these women, when the child is now in your hands, we as a community have gathered around you to equip you to be able to do this. And you can't get involved in the most personal moments of their life if you haven't offered services that draw them in beforehand. And so Cobb Pregnancy Services became First Care Women's Clinic because we wanted to, to up our game and to meet the needs of the community in a way that we weren't doing it before. We, we provide medical services beyond just uh, uh, ultrasound. We, we provide STI testing, and we provide medicine to, to deal with STIs that they're dealing when they come in. We, we provide services that, for example, we give them access to a whole building that we have that houses all of the gifts that are given to us to take care of them. These are for baby needs, maternity clothes, sometimes professional clothing so these women can go out and get jobs, and we help them to put them in, in uh, touch with agencies that will help them to find a new way. What we're trying to do to give them access to that is we get them to take classes. These classes will teach them a better way to approach their life. Because if they came to our door, it isn't just the crisis that they're facing in this moment, but there's a way that they're living that led them to us. And we want to just not deal with this moment, but to equip them to break out of this pattern of life that brought them to our door in the first place. And all of these opportunities exist in, in two buildings over near Roswell Street Baptist Church. We strategically placed ourselves when we bought that building on the bus line so that the people that we're trying to reach have the ability to get to us. This is an incredibly forward-thinking, incredibly professional organization run by people from this community. And one of the things that I, I can encourage you if you want to, to volunteer and to become a part of this, because your church is already involved. You're already empowering this. I'm here as a representative of our organization to say thank you for what you've already done to help make this a reality. But if you want to get involved even in a more deep way, and you go there to volunteer, know that there are so many opportunities. You don't have to counsel the women that come in. You can help in the office. If you don't want to help in the office, you can help maintain the building around there. If you don't want to do that, you can work in the building where we actually give the clothing away or the baby needs away. If you don't want to do that, you can help with the classes. There are so many different ways to get involved. And it is life-changing, not just for the people that come there that need help, but for the people that go there to volunteer. I know this because I told you I have a different job than what I do in that building, but that path there started when I went there to volunteer. I walked in and said, I want to help in any way that I can. And then God used that as a beginning to connect me to this issue in a way that I couldn't possibly foresee before that day that I went in there. And one of the things that, that I want to end this on is that 
all over the country, I get the opportunity to go and speak to pregnancy resource centers. That's why I can tell you I know that we have a very special one in our own community. But another thing that's, that's fascinating about these is that God draws and calls out remarkable people of our community to be involved in these places. They have to be. They're dealing with something terrible in the most Christian way they possibly can. And they see terrible things and hear terrible things all the time. But the people that he calls out, if you join in their efforts, if you volunteer to be with them, I'm no longer there with them every day. But when I am there and when I was there, I worked there for three years in their office and I helped raise money for the organization. When I was there every day with them, what I realized was God has called out some of the most extraordinary people in our community from all these different churches and all these different denominational backgrounds to work together in the most Christ-like way to solve a terrible problem. It is a blessing to be there, and we are grateful for everything you've already done to support those efforts. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, I got to follow that. Um, hi, Jay. Thank you. All right, I'm here to talk about uh, One Need. It's an organization that I get to work with, so I've got my One Need hat on right now. Um, One Need is an organization that serves the benevolent needs of churches. Essentially, we partner with churches to help them meet the requests that come in in the community for help for people in need. Um, the mission of One Need specifically is to equip the church to hear every need and to serve communities with generosity and hope. So the way it works is um, churches partner with One Need. The, as every single um, need that comes through the doors is given um, access to a website where they can submit their needs. Every single need, every single person who submits a need gets a call from a care pastor, usually within, absolutely within 24 hours, often within minutes, the way it works. And we hear those needs completely, and then if money will help, then we will put out what we call a need alert. Um, those need alerts is an email that goes to a bunch of folks who have agreed to receive the emails and do one of three things, pray, share, or give if they feel led. So what I'm doing this morning is I'm asking you to become a deeter. Um, we call them deeters because 1 John 3.18 says we need to love not just in words and speech, but in deed and in truth. So Dieter, I think, is a word we actually made up. It's not in the Bible, but we'd love for you to become Dieter. So all you have to do is go um, to the website. I'm giving you the link there. If uh, you don't have your phone or you just want to go later, it's oneneed.org. Um, all we need is your name, first, last name, and your email address. That's it. It's the only commitment. Receive the need alerts when they come through. Every single need that is posted over the 10 years that have been, um, that One Need has been in existence, has been met. So it helps the church, give, it gives Sojourn, Sojourn is a partner, um, but it helps us to be able to actually hear these folks that come in that are in need, vet the needs completely, and then um, if money will help, then you'll know that 100% of the money that goes towards these needs um, is, given, um, is given to the folks through the church. It actually come, would come back to Sojourn, and then we're able to hand it to folks so that then we can wrap additional care around them. Um, okay, so we're good. I think that's it.